I made mixes for people for a lot of reasons. Usually because I had a crush on them and wanted to be as obvious as possible while maintaining the facade of plausible deniability. More often than not, though, these mixtapes, usually mix CDs and much later playlists more likely, whatever format they took, they were listened to usually once or twice, a few times perhaps if someone happened to keep them in their car, remarked on, and quickly forgotten. The ephemeral was certainly novel at the time, but as their curator, it many times left me somewhat unsatisfied. These were works, programs of artistic expression meticulously selected and arranged to deliver coded but on-the-nose messages. Shy winks, downcast faces with eyebrows raised. I wanted the gifts to be analyzed, interrogated, taken apart. Rarely did anyone want such a walkthrough. And that's fine. But you're already here, so why not hear what these songs have to say? Like every story, every good story, rather, every mix has a message. This mix, unlike the many mentioned before, is not romantic. While I do love that you're listening, this is a self-indulgent affair. It's not my favorite songs, or even what I think the best songs are. This is just a memory mix. A collection of emotionally echoic Polaroids. An impressionist's musical scrapbook. In Peter Bogdanovich's documentary on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Running Down a Dream, Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder explains why Tom Petty's songs have such staying power to him, even in their seeming simplicity. And I think it's a good way of illustrating what this sort of thing is all about. I don't know if an artist completely understands or needs to be reminded of sometimes is how deeply these songs affect people in such a way that when you hear the song, you know like where you were and even the feeling in your gut when you were 14 hearing that song. And the artists, like if they can accept that, that's a potent thing. It's, it's really, what a, what a gracious situation. Through the compression of time, the degradation of listening and remembering over and over again. Listening and remembering and listening and remembering and listening and remembering and listening and remembering. These songs became something beyond their content. Not what they are quote-unquote about, but what they did. And as any good mixtape goes, you don't just order them chronologically, alphabetically, or haphazardly. Sequence, awkward as it may seem to the ear, is crucial, particular, and intentional. Oh, and because I'm scared of some algorithm deeming this as some sort of memory theft, I can't really play the songs for you. Even clips are kind of tenuous at best. So to get the full experience, the real mouthfeel for your ears, the ear taste, nope, don't like that, Um, the vibe, we'll call it, just cue up the playlist in the description, and as the songs play, I'll explain here why they're here. Think of it like your own dark side of the rainbow experience. It doesn't sync up perfectly, but I'll give you some cues when I'm talking about the next song. Okay. In three, 
two, one. Remember and listen. Remember and listen. Remember and listen. Remember. Track one. I am 20 years old at a bus stop on the outskirts of Knoxville, Tennessee, in the middle of the night, waiting to catch a ride to Nashville. It's almost freezing, and I've been huddled under a blanket for three hours, close enough to the locked doors to get a Wi-Fi signal, but far enough that the dim lights of the interior do nothing to eliminate the book I've brought along. Winston Yellen wails into the night, sounding like his vocal cords are being stretched like an exercise spring. It is a violent and acute wail, juxtaposed against the tender falsetto the song ends on, like he's given himself a rug burn on purpose. This strikes a chord with me, barely awake, as the headlights of a bus draw nearer. Plenty of open seats, heat cranked high, and a destination lying in wait. But not mine. It's headed for Atlanta. Track 2. The millennium is new, and my father, brother, and I have just left our weekly appointment at Chili's. We haven't even left the parking lot when my dad shows us something that will change our lives and really the world. From a sleeve in the back seat, he pulls a transparent rectangle with blueberry-colored edges and opens its clamshell to reveal the pearlescent keys of his brand-new iBook G3. A man of format skepticism, he turns off the built-in CD player of his Dodge Neon and instead powers up a program I have never seen before. It is... a list. White text with a blue bar highlighting a series of cells I do not comprehend. With two clicks... A snare cracks open a psychedelic portal to another realm, all spinning light and dizzying pixels, a phantasmagoric dive toward the far reaches of the outer planes. A nasally voice crawls staccato out of the black against the wawing funk of the song about Jane. And then, a bolt in the night, flashing like a nuclear-powered Polaroid camera, vindictive and fully emphasizing the fricative fury in the lyrics. You want to stay, but you know very well I want you gone. Not fit to f***ing tread the ground I am walking on. My father apologizes with a tone that will ultimately be humorously over-apologetic, but is currently entirely self-serious. The song contextualizes, but the vision paradoxically defines. The screen's boundaries dissolved, the twinkling cosmic threshold cracked open, mystic digital winds throwing it wide and exposing me to the vast storm of sonic elements. Track 3. I'm 16 and visiting my older brother at college witnessing the approximation of his freedom he has by short-term proxy. Pure, unadulterated joy. 
We go to an improv show, crash at his shitty apartment where the kitchen floor slopes down at a 20-degree angle, and dance for hours to all the cool new music he and his friends have discovered. Vampire Weekend, Discovery, Robin, Animal Collective, and Alpha Beat. This is the kind of party I want to be at, and perhaps the only party I feel comfortable at for the next decade, where I am sober and uninhibited enough to truly cherish it. Years later, at my brother's wedding reception, the wedding party will do a synchronized dance to this song, and I will watch my brother hold tight to his husband, fueled by the ecstatic pop brilliance of true love. Listening, remember, and listening, remember, listening, remember, listening, remember. Track four. I am eight, and I am driving in the car with my mother. I am 12, and I am driving in the car with my mother, and we are listening to Jack FM. I am 14, and I am driving in the car with my mother, listening to Jack FM, and the voices begin. I am any age where it is funny to laugh about butts, and I am driving in the car with my mother, listening to Jack FM, and the voices begin, and we laugh. I am eternal and I am driving in the car with my mother listening to Jack FM, and the voices begin, and we laugh once more as Fat Bottom Girls plays. I know the song from before this Groundhog Day drive, but there is something like a curse or enchantment or space-time flattening occurring that makes it so that when we are in the car together, the anthem of ample posteriored women will, no, must play and almost no other time will I stumble across it. I will get married years later, and I will plan for it to interrupt our mother-son dance, but the pandemic will cancel these plans. For the time being. Listening, remembering, and listening, remembering, listening, remembering, listening, remembering. Track 5. I am 10 and my dad has band practice. I wander through the empty church at 3 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon on the hunt for some sort of activity to occupy my mind. It's my first experience with the uncanny, with the liminal. I have walked the space many times, shook hands and sang songs, learned lessons and heard sermons, but these days, every other Saturday, are excitingly eerie. The church is only about five years old at most, resembling more airplane hangar or regional airport terminal than traditional house of worship. The poured, polished concrete floors shine bright in the afternoon as the wall of floor-to-ceiling windows lets in the splendor of the grass growing untamed in the empty lot next door. As cars roll past on the highway on their way somewhere else, I linger in the children's Bible study hall turning over bins of plastic building blocks and crawling into a rainbow mountain of beanbag chairs. It smells antiseptic, freshly scrubbed from the custodial staff, intended to fade by the time anyone stays in here. But my dad has unlocked the doors for the handful of members arriving for rehearsal. I linger and wander for hours haunting the various rooms, opening every cabinet or closet I can find, playing games by myself, 
trying every door to see which one has been left unlocked this week. In the back room, stacked between styrofoam coffee cups and packages of stale biscotti bites, is a television like one I would be excited by when wheeled into a classroom at school. A handful of tapes still sit on the cart underneath. Bible Man, a few vegetable stories, and WoW Hits 2003. It will quickly become a touchstone, revisited over and over again every week as I seek to find some familiar comfort by my new favorite band for the time being in this place. Track 6. I am 12 and have only ever loved rock music. I sneak out of the bunk bed I share with my brother at my dad's apartment as if I'm walking on rice paper. Shutting my dad's bedroom door, I can breathe for a moment and find the remote. In front of the TV, with the volume turned down since I am the only one awake at 8 a.m., I'm going about my normal routine of watching the VH1 Top 20 Music Video Countdown. MTV has almost stopped playing any music I like at this point, and my dad doesn't get Fuse, so the weekly Top 20 is the must-watch. I'm in love with it. The straightforward nature, the absolutely Britishness of the vocals, the bell-like ringing of the piano chords, the popping snare. The video of the forest slowly coming to life behind them as they play mimics the early light of the morning, obscured by the dancing vertical blinds. Cartoons are no match anymore. Along with 100 Years, Are You Gonna Be My Girl and Soak Up the Sun, it feels like this song has not left the list in three years. I hope it lasts 30 more. Track 7. I am 14, driving to the Texas statewide speech and debate tournament when it begins to snow for the first time in years. I'm in a car with three seniors while Isaac Brock's muted country thumps along, holding something back like a reined-in Mustang snorting at the starting line. Seconds before the drums smack, the driver reaches for the volume knob and looks like he almost breaks his wrist twisting it. In synchronization, the three heads are coiled back and thrown forward, kept from smashing through the windshield only by the seatbelts, who must think we have just collided with another vehicle from the sheer force and metallic glints coming out of Johnny Marr's shimmering 12-string saw blade. I know nothing other than I feel like spitting venom sounds like the most badass thing in the world at the moment. Track 8. I'm at a college visit, and after someone gives an impassioned speech about how the place was like a family, the song plays. The band has not quite hit it as big as they will in just six months or so, so the notion has not yet been dulled down to a butter knife's edge. In the packed auditorium, the hook 
buzzed through the air and landed, lodging itself into my brain and reeling me in. Only years later, after being held up as a prize and leading other fish to the sight of bait, will I realize I have only been caught and released reluctantly by the fisher of men, after six years of flailing. The overproduced house remix version I heard will be overshadowed by the endearing charm of the original, which is fitting for the overblown, stripped-bare vulnerability I feel as I've been gutted and flayed. Track 9. I am 17 and driving my car across town to visit my dad on a Thursday night. It's winter, but Texas winter, so it's getting dark earlier, but the only thing classically wintry is the slight chill in the air. The sky is stunning. Ombre orange to purple, and my friend Sebastian's just shared my first Dropbox folder with me, filled with torrented albums by Tobacco, Aesop Rock, Black Moth Super Rainbow, and what I choose to be the first listen, Alopecia. I truly have no idea what I'll be hearing. As soon as I hit play, the jangling yet buzzing, reverb-drenched acoustic guitar and hungover groggy beat match the drudgery of Yoni Wolf's sad sack story. When I hear him nasally drone out the first line, I'm hooked. It's unlike anything I've heard before, emotive but closed off, the verses sitting on a malfunctioning conveyor belt, scraping the ground as it slantedly falls at the feet of a chorus teetering on the edge, which fits too many syllables into a line and somehow pulls you back up by the collar, only to dangle you at the precipice over and over in a churning, miserable, sad boy anti-anthem. Track 10. I'm 13 and school starts at 7 a.m. For about a week, I ride my bike each morning as soon as I wake up just to get moving. It's winter, which means it manages to dip below 50 in the morning, so the wind rips past my ears such that I have to crank the giant headphones I'm wearing while riding. I'm wearing pajama pants and a rocket summer hoodie, nothing fit for a bike ride. My nose pinkens and my tears run horizontal from my eyes as I cycle as hard as I can, watching the streetlights blink off as I cycle past each one, like they're trying to catch me in the fading dark of the dawn. I have timed it such that the swells of building strings intertwine as I pedal uphill, like each spin of the gear is in sync with the bow raked across them. As I crest, the sun peaks over the horizon. I drift over the edge and stare at the base advancing toward me, lifting my legs off the pedals and balancing them on the crossbar. All is golden, and the perfect symmetry of the moment does not bother me, the cold slowly fading into the dull hum of a Texas winter's day. Listen, remember, and listen, and remember, and listen. Remember, 
Track 11. I have been broken up with by the first person I thought I was in love with. I'm now on my father's couch watching Almost Famous, a great movie. As Patrick Fugit's character runs along the airport terminal to watch Kate Hudson fly away in the clear blue, Nancy Wilson's mandolin strums a sincere but naive melody that feels like it's trying to take off after the plane on the screen flapping its arms and trying to catch the wind, but just coming up short after a couple of short bouts of gliding. It's only when the wheels fully lift off that the wall of electric guitars swell, a fond and bittersweet farewell to the ground it's leaving behind. I will remember hearing this song and cherish the catharsis it prompts many times, and for years will be unable to locate a recording of it besides from the scene itself. I'll be sad and forget it, and a year later maybe give it another shot and repeat and repeat. But more than a decade after releasing it, Cameron Crowe will share it on his personal website, and a kind soul will upload it to YouTube. Another decade after that, I will sit at my desk and uncover this tiny, unburied treasure, struck with a now odd fondness, and chuckle at my sweet ignorance. It's a beautiful minute and a half. Track 12. I'm sitting in my childhood bedroom at the edge of my bed, staring at Nicholas Pryor's photo from his collection, The Age of Man, used for the cover of The Devil and God Are Raging Inside Me. Masked men on the porch, a child hiding around a corner. It's the perfect match for this Halloween of a record. It's raw and droning, feedback-drenched anger and chiming biblical levels of self-loathing. I'm 15, and for the first time I feel like I'm hearing my soul being played back to me. For the next year, I scream the lyrics as I drive to school, screeching along to the chorus letting out some anger I do not yet understand. I'll pre-order their next album with money I save up from my first part-time job. I'll buy the t-shirt that shrinks to an unwearable size, and I am unaware that I will have to put all of this band's work away because of the sheer betrayal and foolishness I will feel some years later when Lacey is accused of and all but admits to exploiting young fans. I do not yet know that the devil wins, that this metaphor stinks of unearned absolution and bitter truth, and that I will feel frustrated even years later that such strong memories can be tainted. Track 13. I am 14 years old. After several failed attempts at learning how to play the guitar, I'm finally making some progress. My granddad's vintage Martin is in my hands and I am struggling to pluck the strings because I don't have a pick and lack the proper calluses. My granddad shuffles out of the arrowhead-clad walls of his study and returns just a few minutes later with a piece of notebook paper. On it are a few things. A hand-drawn diagram of a small hand, 
with little fingernails, shirt and jacket cuffs complete with cufflinks, and the fingers labeled one through five, along with the lyrics to the first two verses of the song, with an odd sequence of numbers above them. He tells me that when he was not much older than me, he was playing with a small group of musicians in the Texas Panhandle at a tri-state folk music festival. Upon winning the contest, he met a man who won the Individual Performer Award, and my granddad asked him how he played such complex music all by himself. The man drew a little sketch of a hand, numbered the fingers, and wrote the lyrics down again. He kept that little drawing for years, and after a lot of practice, I can now witness how my granddad can fingerpick any song he wants to on the fly. It always amazes me. He hands me the diagram like a top-secret cipher he's passing along to another operative. I will bastardize and simplify the method, but the mechanics are all the same. It's crucial to where I'll go in my playing. The jangling folk flourishes on any down-strummed chord. I'll throw the paper out some years later and never stop kicking myself. Track 14. I'm 17 and one-act play rehearsal is just finished at 7 p.m. The sky, a sanguine tone, is stretched taut over the school parking lot, empty except for the few lingering vehicles, glinting and scattered like droplets cast off from the sunset. This is actually an early release. Normally we're going at least for another hour or so. So Dallas and I decide to drive around, grab a drink from America's Drink Stop, Vibe as it is. Back at the school parking lot where we usually can get away with loitering for a while by saying we're waiting for some friends inside, we open all the doors to his mom's purple minivan and climb onto the roof with the stereo cranked. We've only recently truly discovered our love for the boss and the pseudo-macho-neo-romanticism of his Jersey Turnpike epic is all that our detoxing masculine little hearts can take. We take it as our own, blaring Clarence's mournful, lonely streetlight saxophone solo into the air with our pantomime. I'll perfect my caricatured Bruce growls some years later when I drunkenly sing Thunder Road at a karaoke bar in Brussels. But even the drunk businessmen who commend me do not give me the same validation as our friendship does in this moment. Track 15. I am any age below 11, and we are sitting on the Dalmatians blanket in my living room, which means it is TV during dinner time, a weekly celebration. The family is, shockingly, not watching the classic Father of the Bride or its equally lovable sequel, but is instead invested in Tom Hanks' directorial debut. I realize that pop music is pretty much done at this point because I don't know if it's possible to top Adam Schlesinger's saccharine song of summer of the century, a song that plays no less than 11 times in 108 minutes, cannot mathematically go this hard, and yet it is oneederful. I will not be taking any questions and never will. Listen, remember, and listen. 
Track 16. I'm in a van packed with luggage and exhausted college students driving back to Virginia from Akron in the middle of the night. I wish I could sleep, but the road is loud and bumpy, and it would be rude to abandon our driver as one of the few woken passengers. Outside is pitch black, only two dim beams shooting into the darkness. We're passing the aux cable back and forth, trying to share our favorites while we have all the time in the world. The driver plays this song, and the steel twang is muffled by the roar of the highway at 2 a.m. Still, the gruff voice of Mark Oliver Everett is distinct enough to rise above it all. I will always think of my grandfather. He is an old railroad man, or the kind of man who would sing a song about an old railroad man. I need to call him, hear his voice, let him know I'm thinking of him. I do the same for the driver, hoping he's well and still remember this moment. I remember the diagram, the tiny cuffed hand, the numbered fingers, and all of it blows away in the wind as the song ends, and some other forgettable moment shuffles into its place. Track 17. I'm watching Shrek 2 and realize that pop music is pretty much done at this point because another person named Adam has somehow tied the previous record holder for the most S-tier song of summer of all time. It is dense with joyful noise, packed to the gills with counter-melodies, background vocals, and some truly incredible hand claps. It is one of the most amazing examples of a song whose sound perfectly matches its lyrical content, from the thunderous, percussive intro to the exhausted, barely-held-together collapse of its ending. I will not be taking any questions, and never will. Track 18. The movie has finished, and I'm seated next to Heartbreak. A little too close to home, a little too far for comfort. Black screen, white text, pulsing with the chorus's wall of sound. I feel like a vulture circling a carcass changing to carrion. Beak wet with blood. Shadow looming large, jealous of my own shade. The dead hearts are everywhere and I am preparing to feast, licking my lips with leaking life force. It is not a pretty sight, and I derive no pleasure from it, but I am an emaciated scavenger. It will be years before I'm found wounded from my own hunt, the few pickings I scrounge together having bit back because of my own careless commitment. Track 19. I'm tasked with taking our family dog, a schnauzer named Hans, for his daily walks, which I usually loathe because I have not yet realized the comfort of accomplishing chores. But when Noah Lennox's Beach Boy harmonies are drowned in drums that sound bigger than a car, the sun dips below the horizon and a golden blanket is draped across the neighborhood. 
Suddenly, I want my walk with Hans to last forever. For the cicadas to never stop sizzling. For my iPod video's battery to never die. Solace and the moment at hand are the only things I want. It is the first taste of mindfulness, of clarity, of real peace I will be able to recall in my bones when they want to tighten but know they should not. Like my body is holding on to something entirely too sweet. Track 20. It is the first semester of college. I'm in my common room of my dorm, and a group of us are all writing our first papers, and everything still feels shiny and new. I've not yet found skinny love, but the symphonic opus is a joke turned sincere, a mock of first hookups we love behind closed doors. It is rainstorms and golden Sunday mornings before much is due, days with much to do, but enjoying it. To be in an entirely new place, starting a new era, is fresh and tastes of mint. My first fall of any real chill, which bears an eerie resemblance to where I will end up a full decade later. Birch trees, wind-battered peninsulas, churning whitecaps. It is a novel love, untapped but bursting at the seams with sap. I buy a new jacket with my love and will wear it as much as possible, with leaves crunching under boots and mornings much too early to love, but new enough to cherish. Track 21. I am freshly 18, and my senior year English teacher has asked us to bring in a song we want to share with the class that explains how we feel in this particular moment of our lives. I spend a week losing sleep over what to choose, even though this assignment will have all but no effect on my final grade. On the final day of class, I bring in this song and all the choices are assembled into a playlist to be played over the classroom speakers. It's my impression that we will all be presenting these selections as part of the assignment, explaining to the class how we feel and why the song captures it. Instead, however, the music is played at such a low volume that it is inaudible over the constant chatter of the class. We spend the entire period shooting the shit with one another, our teacher's nose pressed to her screen, inputting final grades. I can't blame her. Now, normally, I am grateful for such a respite, but school is effectively over already. The summer's respite, the final gasp of adolescence before the transition to adulthood, is in full swing. My girlfriend at the time has sat next to me and has chosen Stop This Train by John Mayer. She thinks pretty much everyone would already get it, so no need to share its meaning. But me, my song, people need to know, damn it. But instead, it is reduced to background noise, elevator music, room tone. I wonder why I'm so appalled at this. Songs deserve to be cherished, 
tied to pivot points imbued with temporal, spatial, and emotional energy. I only managed to catch the chorus one time while listening. There must be some way, I think, staring at my classmates. But I don't, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon. You will see. You Only Guide Me by Surprise is written, produced, and edited by me, Landry Ayers. The music in this episode was by, like, so many people who deserve our praise, attention, and money. Uh, You can find a link to the entire playlist on YouTube in the description for this episode. If you made it all the way to the end, seriously, thank you. Not many people do that, especially for a piece as different as this one. I would really love to hear what your memory mixes sound like and what inspired each song. So please, feel free to make your own, share it, tag me on Twitter, and let's listen. If you want to hear more stories like this, and a lot that aren't so much like it, you can subscribe to this feed, and I ask, please share it with a friend if you do. If you really, really like the show, feel free to hop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen that you can leave a review and write something about the show. I promise I really, really appreciate it, and all of the kind words are very, very helpful to me. Thanks for listening, and you'll hear more from me soon. Thank you.